For September 7th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 636, Corn and Eels. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like a kitchen that is full of, well... Maybe a few too many cooks. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, associate chef, sous chef, Matt Rather. I am here with my good friends, uh, head chef, Pete Fenzel. Good evening, chef. You, you flatter me, Matt. You flatter me. <laughs> and, uh, and also head chef Jordan Stokes, who joins us. He's doing a, uh, he's doing a pop-up in our restaurant this week. Uh, chef Stokes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I prefer the title uh, "Hidden Ratatouille Rat." <laughs> <laughs> the you know a uh, 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 film I have not I have not seen, and maybe this will be the the encouragement I need to go uh, fire it up on Disney Plus because we are not firing up Mulan on Disney Plus. Our uh, video on demand, our premium video on demand budget was blown. <laughs> Last week, <laughs> on uh, on exhausted, yeah, absolutely, on Bill uh, Bill and Ted face the music, and you know what? I am completely happy with the choice that we made um, to uh, uh, to do it that way. So we we will. Uh, I think the way it's looking well, is that to, to be fair, it's coming out in three months for. For quote unquote free, right? right? So, that's what I'm. That's yeah, what I yeah. think that our plan should be. We will absolutely uh, tackle the live action Mulan. Um, it is enough of an event that you know it warrants kind of automatic consideration on the podcast, uh, like it's a Marvel movie or uh, a uh, an entry in the Fastiverse. But uh, that. Um, you know, but we can we can definitely stand to hold off a little while. So, what to do uh, while we're waiting for that to happen? Well, I saw something on Instagram that put me in mind uh, of the topic of food and cooking. I may tell uh, may have the opportunity to tell the story of exactly how uh, this topic uh, came to me later on. But food and cooking, it struck me that it is something that our relationship with with these uh, these practices, with these uh, things, food and cooking uh, things and practices may have um, shifted a little bit while we've been in lockdown, in sort of semi-isolation, and, uh, you know, the closure of restaurants and, and so on. So um, let, me, uh, let me ask how you guys learned to cook. Who, or I, I, I said nearly who taught you to cook, but that actually assumes facts which may or may not be true. So, Jordan, uh, you are our guest, uh, hidden ratatouille rat, uh, really um, making sure that our soup tastes good and that our dishes are, you know, as faithful to Escoffier as we can possibly imagine. Uh, how, sir, did you learn to cook? So, for me, it was very much a family thing. Um, and there's probably probably it's both of my parents and then also my grandmother had a hand in it. But the way that that worked was uh, was very different for each of them. Uh, so my mother was the person who cooked in the household when I was growing up. Um, and I was, you know, a, a very entitled and ego driven monster as children be. So my relationship to the food that she was making was usually like, is it dinner time yet? Can I have a snack? That kind of thing, right? Uh, Definitely, she tried to cook with me because she needed ways to occupy our time on the weekend. So like we would make cookies. We would, uh, she used to make a lot of bread. I learned to make bread from her. It was always just kind of a way to fill time. Um, Later on, my uh, my father, especially after he retired, took a very, very intense interest in cooking. And cooking for him was always something that was like a performance that he was doing, that uh, that he needed to be kind of like... Uh, if you've ever seen someone do like the song and dance where they, they sort of tell you about every ingredient that went into this in great detail and like the cultural history and which particular small town in Italy uh, cooks the, the clams in this particular way or something. I pay a lot of mo- I pay I a lot of money to go to those restaurants. <laughs> or I yeah, did. Yeah, right? I did at one time. 
This, this, this sounds like a little bit dismissive, but he's he's a really, really good cook. And that kind of cooking as performance, like I do that too. And it's something that I definitely picked up from watching him. But he would not necessarily ever cook with me because that sort of takes away from the performative aspect of it. Right. Like you you can learn a lot by watching somebody uh, do the high dive in the Olympics, but they don't offer you offer to take you up on the board with them and help with the the toe loop or whatever. I should have said figure skating. I don't know what the dives are. Um, And then like with my grandmother, uh, we would visit my grandmother in the summers always. And she would actually because she had more time, probably she would actually like have me cook with her. not just because it was something for the kids to do or because uh, like the food needed to get on the table, but kind of with an eye, I think, to teaching me how to do it. Uh, but she had this very, very kind of like cryptic manner about it. That was never the overt purpose. It was just like, oh, come over here and help me with this. The first thing that you do is you you put on the heat and then you like you put in these spices. Taste that. What do you think it needs? Um, and I think that like when I when I ask this question, the answer that springs to mind is my grandmother. I think of learning to cook things from her and learning sort of her way around the task of cooking. But then if I'm a little bit more fair, both of my parents are definitely kind of in there. I just don't give them enough credit because. You know, your relationship with your parents is much more close and raw, and it doesn't have that idyllic quality that a grandparent can have sometimes. Sure, time so that's the answer for me. Time spent with your parents is not leisure time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's family not time. In the same way, right? Yeah. For sure, Pete. When, when, uh, how, how did you come to be the three star chef that we, uh, four star, five star? How many stars can you get? All the stars, you have them, Pete. And how did you get them? That's what I want to know. One star. Uh, I I didn't learn to cook. I I would say that I did not really conceive of cooking as a skill that had a holistic quality, probably until my mid-20s, in the sense that I knew that individual dishes existed, right? And And I knew how some of them were made, although I had very limited experience making any of them. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm trivializing that a little bit. I'm sure I made a bunch of things here and there. I definitely learned how to camp cook, how to, like, put a bunch of, you know, spaghetti inside of a tinfoil and bury it in a, in a fire so that it doesn't taste good, right? Something along those lines, right? Like cooking <laughs> potatoes at the campfire and stuff. Uh, I made some very, very disgusting camp food back when I was a Boy Scout. But uh, I would say that my home is very crowded, and my my mom and my sisters, you know, would make things and then I would pitch in and I would help. But my job was almost always cutting the fruit, which there was a lot to do because there was a lot of people who wanted fruit. And so I would I would make the breakfast and I would cut the fruit um, and and I would sweep the floors. Um, and uh, and those would be my main jobs when there was like culinary things that were happening. So I didn't really learn a sort of family holistic attitude towards cooking. And I would also even venture to say that because my mom's mother died when she was pretty young. There isn't really a cooking tradition other than some specific recipes that have been passed along, right? There's not a sort of like, we didn't have, uh, and my, my dad's mother had a stroke when she was relatively young that was pretty debilitating. So we didn't really have a grandmother around uh, or a grandfather around to teach us anything about food. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm sort of following the threads as you guys are plucking them out as to, as to the presence of the absence. And so most of you knew me, right? You guys both knew me in the period in New York where I was basically discovering food because I, I never really had a particularly, uh, you know, knowledgeable and intentional relationship with food. I just ate everything. And, and I would eat, especially whenever I was in private, and I'd be like, oh, I have a moment to myself. I'm going to eat all the food. I'll eat everything in sight. And I'll binge eat and I'll gain a ton of weight. Um, you guys knew me when I went on my big weight loss binge in New York City in the mid 2000s, which involved me kind of rediscovering or discovering for the first time a sense of power over food. And you know that the things that I made were not things like they weren't cuisine, right? <laughs> like it was like sardines and mustard, like like uh, rice and beans with a whole ton of hot sauce and tomato sauce and stuff, right? Um, 
And so my relationship with cooking was much more of a trial and error thing for a long time where I would make I had a Foreman grill and I would put everything on the Foreman grill. Right. And then so I would sort of develop a, a conversant relationship with bachelor food. And and I got to the point where I could make some things. You know, I, I could make a couple of fancy dinners. Um, I could make, you know, some desserts and I would save them for special occasions. And in doing them, they would be a big production. Like it's not a it's not a thing that I can kind of do in a relaxed way, even to this day is something that when it's my turn to cook, clear the decks, get out of the way, because it's a big freaking deal. Now, the difference for me then, on top of that, is that my wife, her father was a, was a very, very committed and ardent cook who carried down his family's cooking tradition. And it still is an ardent and committed cook. And, and I've been told that someday I'll be able to eat his food and it's going to be amazing. Um, we have not had the opportunity yet. Um, and so my wife is also a very enthusiastic and ardent cook and she cooks all the time and it's a hobby of hers. And I often kind of bemoan that I don't, you know, I don't help her enough, but it's also one of the big ways I help her is I leave her alone. <laughs> I can like let her have the kitchen because she wants to do her thing and I'll take care of the baby and like, while she's cooking and that's something that she wants to do. Um, and I'll clean up and I'll get the vitamins and, and, uh, and I'll get the napkins and I'll get the beverages and, and, and kind of take care of the ancillary stuff. So I would say that there are some dishes that I make. Uh, there are some things that I'm pretty comfortable making. And I watch a lot of food television uh, because my wife was very enthusiastic about it because she she wanted to learn about cooking uh, and cared a lot about cooking. Um, I've met Yan Ken Cook in person at an exhibition at a wall at a Wegmans recently. <laughs> so that was fun. Not wow. Really last year. Yeah. An early yeah, yeah. star. I mean, like it, that yeah. is an old school star of of like, I think, like PBS food television. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Back when back when, uh, you know, when we looked to the government to educate us in how to cook. Through uh, and the Helena Rubinstein Foundation, a longtime supporter of Outstanding Children's Television. <laughs> I didn't support <laughs> did support Yankee Cook, but yes, I would say that like that my my childhood experience with food was very informed by the sort of trends and fashions of the '80s, and that it was very kind of starchy and like had a lot of uh, you know pasta and cottage cheese uh, and other kinds of things that were that were kind of things at the time. Um, I have certain things that are part of my family's culinary tradition, but they exist kind of in isolation. Like we ate a lot of vice first, right? Which I've encou- not encountered much anywhere else. Mm. Um, and I think that's because we have family from Bavaria, I think, but I don't know. Like, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I know where it comes yeah, from. That's, I don't a, know from Bavaria. that's a real album cut of the sausage world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That is a we're, deep, we're, we're yeah, that is side. a, you're right. <laughs> That's a deep verse, I was going to say. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, exactly. So so other than some deep verses and some uh, some standbys for holidays and uh, for Valentine's Day and for birthdays and stuff, um, you know, I'm in charge of, you know, mercifully killing the lobsters. But other than that, I'm not really the big cook around the house. Uh, so my Hang on. What's, uh, yeah. what's your lobster murder method? Uh, oh, by dipping their heads in boiling water. Um, plunging them headfirst so that they they the the hot water hits their brain first. Why do you do something else? Do you like chop their heads off or something? Or oh no, I've never done it. But like apparently there's a there's a real arms race in these things. If you can soak them in water infused with clove oil, that will apparently anesthetize them. Oh wow! And then, well, <laughs> and then you can yeah. just do whatever. <laughs> but but the, uh, you it does know, break I, my heart a little bit when they thrash for their lives and then I kill them. But I mean, it's like you know the cost of being alive, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. They're, they're also like, they're, they're not sentient on the level, even that, uh, well, never mind. I kind of don't want of, to of Lieutenant commander data. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. Like they would, they would totally Riker would totally wipe the floor with them in that season two episode of, of, yeah. uh, of star Trek. No, but, uh, I've, that's not I've, what we're here to talk about. That's I've, a I've also heard that, that if you have a, you know, a six or an eight inch chef's knife, if you get the point, like right into their, brainstem as it were you can dispatch them instantly with that uh with you know plunging the knife downwards and then you know putting them in the pot uh they are already dead they don't they are not killed by being boiled which is you know um presumably a little more humane but like as jordan says there's there's an arms race in this sorts of thing and the thing is that if you if you knife them right then you're going to lose that delicious lobster juice to the cooking water 
because you've you've punctured the seal. Uh, so you have to decide like how much lobster pain is that extra bit of flavor and texture worth. I'm just gonna get a cattle mall, just like like Anton Chigger, and just like flip a coin for every lobster. <laughs> like, Today's not your day. Uh, <laughs> I've if they get tails, you just like toss them out the window into the streets of Boston. Right? <laughs> exactly. I didn't kill them. Fate did. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you can make a David Foster Wallace joke and look at the lobster before you reveal to it its ultimate fate and say, "I have considered the lobster. <laughs> Consider this." And then you go with the, you know, you go in with the cleaver. Um, I, uh, so I was raised mostly, um, uh, by a single mom who was working and did not have a ton of time to cook. Um, and I, you know, uh, among her, her many, many sort of, uh, remarkable attainments, uh, including raising two boys as a, a single mom, um, the, the, like, uh, you know, uh, having a PhD and changing careers, um, actually pretty close to our age now and going into business and rising to an executive level in aerospace from entry level and, you know, getting an MBA and all these things like, uh, cooking is, is not, uh, and, you know, loving her children wonderfully cooking was not among those, uh, the particular talents that that she had though we had special occasion dishes and so i associate them with with certain times like i have real nostalgic connections to items of prepared food um I may be the only thing, I may be the only person uh, of my generation who really has like a, just a deep sentimental connection to cream of wheat, uh, instant cream of wheat actually preferred. Oh no, me, me too. I have oh, it in really? my cabinet right now. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, oh, that's Not to a steal your thunder, but like, go for it. Oh, I'm really, I'm really glad. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and then, like, uh, I remember a lot of, and then the other one that I was thinking of because it, it came up, it, it came up, uh, preparing dinner the other night, um, because I have become something of a fancy lad with the foodstuffs. Uh, my girlfriend could not believe that I, um, uh, just deeply love, uh, Stouffer's frozen lasagna. And that, like, uh, it just. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, I'm hitting all your buttons too, Pete. Huh? Do you, you know? thaw it first, or do you just eat it just right like in? The, oh, yeah, exactly. Like, just pull it out of the foil and crunch into it like it's a like it's an ice cream sandwich or something. No, you ba- you bake it for like an hour and fifteen minutes until it's all bubbly and delicious. Um, yeah, so love that. Uh, love those. Uh, love those prepared foods. And then you know. Um, uh, there, there was. She had a uh, copy of the Betty Crocker cookbook that has handwritten notes. I hope to, you know, I hope it's passed down to me one day, you know, because there are like handwritten notes in different proportions and things like this, and in uh, the recipes and like the uh, Betty Crocker German green beans recipe, which starts with, uh, which starts as all good food should with frying bacon. Um, Cooking onions in the bacon grease, uh, cooking cooking green beans, canned green beans, uh, of course, in that mixture, adding sugar and vinegar, and uh, topping the the you know boiling it down and topping it with with bacon bits, and uh, like to me that says Christmas more than any any turkey or any cranberry sauce or any you know um, thing like thing like that. Though you know with uh, on the theme of sort of prepared food, definitely the can of cranberry sauce uh, jiggled out into a you know vibrating tubule the ridges still plainly apparent from the sides of the can in the in the vibrating tubule and then um you know uh after after college where you're you're overfed um off of a steam table the uh i i spent a period of time not working um between finding my first job and the end of uh um you know, in the end of school. And I, so I found that my, my job was to, uh, stay home and take care of the house things. And so I started watching a lot of 
daytime food television back when the Food Network had stand and stir shows and the, you know, was run by sort of ex chefs or sort of telegenic current chefs who now like judge, like do presenting or like judge cooking competitions, but then would just stand behind a sort of kitchen island looking set, you know, dumping things into, uh, dumping things into pots, dumping sort of semi-prepared things um, into pots. And that, you know, that led me to kind of research the area and to sort of read uh, a little bit, not cookbooks, um, which are, you know, largely useless, but uh, like uh, books about not cookbooks, but books about cooking. And those things are different, believe it or not. So uh, a little bit of the history, a little bit about sort of chef training. I discovered like what uh, I discovered who Escoffier was, the French guy who wrote down all the like the classic sauces and sort of dishes and stuff like that and learned how to make um, the sauces, you know, learned about baking a little bit, never been much of a baker. Uh, and you know, stuff like that and kind of learned the basic kind of techniques and building blocks, which have, have, I think served me, uh, served me well. And so now I sort of, now I enjoy it, but I, I was kind of one of the people who was in a, maybe a little bit of a post food world in that I, I ate out a lot before, you know, we were all in isolation. And so I'm not, you know, um, I'm not, I, yeah, and it's got, kind of gone back to my old days cooking to to the point where I now like you know am back to like old cycles because these things kind of go in a cycle and then you know you roast a chicken and you have bones if you have bones you can make stock you know you have carrots onions and celery because you stuffed the chicken's cavity with carrots and onions and celery when you roasted it so you have that you have you know kind of staples like peppercorns and garlic and stuff like that so you know you have stock i actually do stock in a pressure cooker now because i got a a, an instant pot recently as a like a novelty gift turns out it's super useful for for um for things like that also you can make pot roast in like 20 minutes i'm not sure if that's a moral improvement but it's definitely a convenience improvement to have a like a succulent falling off the bone chuck roast um just steaming uh with uh you know delicious flavor in uh in 20 minutes and and like i got the pasta rollers out of the high cabinet the other the other day and we made uh we made pasta as kind of a fun you know activity to do um and stuff like that. So I find that like it is uh kind of not being being unlike you guys not not having children um the the cooking is is maybe takes more time it's a little less you know goal oriented like a little less get dinner on the table oriented though that's always in the background these days but i've kind of returned to it um kind of returned to it as as a hobby uh a little bit um i don't know yeah the the it's it, it's interesting like to sort of talk about your your personal your personal food cultures. Um, hey, Jordan, has has isolation altered your food routine uh, a little bit or your cooking situation? I mean, for a while it sure did because there were you know ingredients you couldn't get, and I, like everybody else, like made a sourdough starter and tried to bake sourdough. Uh, and when we finally could get yeast again, I just glorified in how uh, how much better <laughs> commercial factory oriented yeast is than the the non that you can grow on your countertop. Don't you just um, don't you just like stand over it and kind of flick your beard a couple times just to make the you know. <laughs> wrong kind of microorganism? Not, I believe, Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we uh, the big difference is that we used to go shopping for ingredients when we needed them. I mean, we would do a a sort of a a weekly big run, but we would also just, you know, like, Oh, we're out of milk. I'm going to go to the grocery store. Let's make a list and get everything that we need. Whereas now we have gotten into a like 10 to 14 day, uh, go late at night, mask up, uh, buy absolutely everything kind of cycle. And we plan out the meals a lot more, which is healthier. But then we've also basically given ourselves permission to, 
eat whatever garbage we need to to stay sane. So it's a lot of Cheez-Its, you know, and a lot of salami and a lot of other things that uh, a more intentional approach to food would probably rule out of our lives. So that aspect of it is kind of a wash. Cheez-Its, by the way, Um, is Cheez-Its are something that you could do homemade if you had a, a sourdough starter, because like one of the <laughs> one of the uh, ingredients in Cheez-Its is the off, you know, the the what is it? The kind of the pour off uh, of the sourdough starter that you when you feed it, the you know, the liquid and stuff that you pour off that that's kind of um <laughs> I don't know the, the the gross mucus of the sourdough, the sneeze, <laughs> the, the, the sourdough sneeze uh, that you pour yeah, off the so genetic crap that was left over, <laughs> the, the Danny DeVito to sourdough Schwarzenegger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that an ingredient in Cheez Its? Yeah, really. it's a, it's great. You know, it's a great way to start because that's that was what gives them that kind of tangy flavor. You know, in addition to you know cheese. Yeah, <laughs> to, to like a a legally required amount of cheese, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, it's um, I I basically do do all of the cooking. It's like one of the big tasks that I take on within our household. Uh, and then because I'm doing that, I also do a lot of the meal planning and a lot of the shopping. But it's it's much more kind of. Um, the the uh, the interval has gotten messed up, so that now it's these these big kind of uh, camel like runs where we you know absolutely pack the car with groceries and just barely squeeze everything into the fridge, and then it, in a way it's kind of more joyless because then I already know what I'm making for dinner, and I can never just say like, huh, let me go on the internet and see what would be fun to cook today yeah. because that's already been taken care of, right? Right. Uh, and th- th- I really miss that aspect of pre-corona. Life, honestly, being able to just sort of go to the grocery store and wander around and like see what looks good, uh, and then buy those and come home and cook something. I fe- uh, how about you, Matt? Like you, you said that you uh, you were going out to eat more than you were cooking prior to coronavirus. Yeah. Can I ask, like, what did that look like? Were you going to a different trendy restaurant, or was it like bodega sandwiches, or what? It was uh, it was kind of be- between. Um, I, so I lived in a neighborhood that had uh, I since moved, but like I lived in a neighborhood at that at the time when you know you could walk places w- and go to things. Do you remember walking, guys? Do you remember? Do you remember the old walking days when we used to walk to places and be at those places? Um, you can still walk, you just can't walk anywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I walked for four and a half miles today. It was great. That's that's I, a I great went up point. a hill. I went down i went up another hill and i went home <laughs> the uh sorry I, I i did my uh my little shaggy dog joke wrong remember destinations guys yeah, do, you remember those? <laughs> do you remember the days when there was a point um the uh on the map at which your your journey ended the uh no, guys. So I lived in in a kind of a neighborhood that had like a lot of like a mix of kind of quick service restaurants, like fast casual, and you know, um, kind of sit down restaurants. Not like white tablecloth and nothing particularly trendy anymore. Stuff that was maybe like ten years off of being uh, of being trendy. Um, but like, you know, I was just in a neighborhood where there was stuff and there was like, you know, the fish taco place and like there was the burger place and there was the the non-fish taco, the carnitas taco place. Uh, and there were street vendors and there's if you wanted something, you know, fancier, there was a place where and because I'd lived there for 10 years, I knew like, um, I mean, don't, don't let this get the wrong impression of me, uh, but I knew most of the bartenders. Right. Um, and you may think it's because I'm friendly, you know, but I say no. No, don't let don't get the wrong impressions because I, I you like to drink a lot and the uh, you know so the the probably maybe four three or four nights a week you know I would have gone out um, to get something you know sushi or something like that um, as a you know uh, unmarried guy living in a really walkable neighborhood that was a you know workable thing I think you know the more kind of complex the demands. Um, the, of your home life, like the, the less that becomes, it's a kind of spontaneity, uh, you know, related to, but different from the sort of a spontaneity you were talking about, Jordan, like, um, 
you know, what shall we have for dinner tonight? What do you, what do you want? Like, oh, you know, well, I could walk to the, you know, I could, could walk to the new, uh, the new, like, uh, pizza place that just opened that, you know, serves you a, a little 12 inch, $18 pizza with, uh, you know, artisanal bacon on it or something. I don't, I don't know, but that, so it's, uh, that was the pizza, the, the, sorry, you're describing pizza hut. Oh. Pizza Hut. You are describing Pizza Hut. <laughs> it was a small house, you know, where they serve pizza. <laughs> the personal pan pizza, where it's standing in like two solid inches of rendered pepperoni grease. <laughs> I mean, so this is a good example, right? So, like, our birthdays. My wife and my birthdays passed relatively recently, and my wife asked me, "When you were a kid, like, what did you use to get to eat your birthday?" And, and you know, because that's supposedly something really special to you. And for me, it was. Still pan pizza from Pizza Hut, right? Like preferably with mushrooms and, and onions, which I really loved. And and I would never get that now. Um, I don't even know where there is a Pizza Hut, right? Like like at all. I'm not even just near me, just in general, right? Um, I mean, there are still Pizza Huts, right? They aren't all gone or something. They haven't all been stolen by Carmen San Diego or something like that. I believe they, they the I believe the there. the correct plural is Pizza's Hut. I thought you were going to say the correct plural is Carmen's San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay yeah, yeah yeah no right it's, i think it's hut's pizza <laughs> well, uh the it's like like ihop it is a you know uh, architecturally as well as culinarily distinct um sort of place you know yeah so okay got it you got, you got a personal pan pizza from pizza hut pete you still can you still can have you can have that anytime you want you're a grown-up now you can have that anytime you want <laughs> Well, I, but but Sarah made pizza tonight and it Aww. was great. Probably yeah, <laughs> probably was, a lot better. Yeah, than anything you could get at pizza. I should, I should also add, I have taken a relative. I think at this point, not quite double digit number of cooking classes. So it's not like I don't know anything, but it's just not. I don't have that tradition. You know, it's not the same. But although I would also say that unlike Jordan, our our food planning has always been a week in advance. Because it's, there's like always been a list, you know, and Sarah gets very excited about what she wants to make for the coming week. And she would ask me what I would want. Right. And, of course, there's a really interesting sort of uh, relationship between the question and the answer, because just sort of saying nothing or like I don't care is not a helpful contribution to the to the eating and the, and the cooking. Right. It's like, no, no, no. When I ask you what you want to eat next week. This is not so that, you know, I can do you a favor, right? Like this is because we are making food for the week, right? And it's for us and I need ideas. And so I want you to help me generate ideas, I guess, is part but of can it. I ask, yeah. Can I ask, is that something that like an explicit conversation that she's had with you, that that's really what she means? Or is this you projecting? No, it's just an explicit conversation we've had multiple times. That's interesting because for me, when I ask like, hey, is there anything that you want this week? I really do actually mean like, is there something that you've been thinking of already that you want to have for dinner that I could like be a really good boy and do a nice thing for you by making? Right, right. Uh, this is this, the, the idea of like food as a kind of uh, elaborate performance of care, right? That uh, is part of how I how I grew up with it. And if it's just like, spitballing oh um hmm well nothing too heavy because i'm trying to lose weight i'm like that's not helpful right i don't yeah. want anything i don't want any suggestions here that aren't going to spark joy i was trying to see if there was a treat that i could give you if there's not a treat that you can that i can give you the answer that i want is no nah, nothing i'm nothing in particular and let me you know let me then explore the the wilds of the cooking websites and find recipes on my own so that, that's interesting sarah and i differ in this regard i suppose yeah she usually would ask me when she's come up with two or three th ideas she already has and she wants to be able to kind of fill the week out um it does help that i tend to like and recommend simple things so it'll be like oh how about beef and broccoli right or like how come how come some more chicken parmesan is always a safe thing to say although i rarely say that because that's the kind of that's kind of greedy uh to say like well you could make chicken parm all the time <laughs> it's like she already does make it a lot it's, it's yeah. fine um it's, more it's, it's not greedy Presumably, she also gets to eat the chicken parmesan, right? Oh, no, I know, I know. It's like we already get chicken parmesan a lot. So asking for it more often might be overkill. Um, but but also we have a list of recipes on the kitchen, on the on the refrigerator, um, or at least we did in our old place. I don't know if it's back up. And I, I don't mean the actual recipes. I mean like a list of maybe 40 different recipes 
that are all indexed in little fine print by the cookbook they're from um, that that uh, that are in various categories. And so um, I could go there and I would pick uh, I could pick a recipe. I'd be like, oh, how about the Mexican burgers? Those are good. Right. Um, and uh, and so I, I will also I would also disagree with not disagree with, but offer a contrary uh, opinion to Matt in that cookbooks are a huge part of our life at home. But I would also say that each cookbook probably only has maybe like five or 10 things in it that are interesting. And so the cookbooks are like full of dog ears and bookmarks and notes uh, because most of it is not what you want, but the, the little things are. And it has even gotten to the point where once we had a problem where uh, our kitchen sink overflowed and damaged one of Sarah's cookbooks. And to surprise her, I bought her a replacement for it. And then to surprise her again, I went through the replacement and transcribed all of her notes from the old version of the cookbook into the new one because it was the notes that were important, not the things that were in the cookbook per se, uh, which was another sort of interesting kind of relationship with literature. You've made my, you've made my point for me, Pete. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's the circle of readership, right? It's interpretation. <laughs> the, um, but the, yeah, I, sh- I, I maybe came off a little more ungenerous than I, than I meant to sound kind of being, you know, uh, making bold pronouncements for shocking effect. But the, you know, what, what I meant was actually, I, I'm not sure they're super useful in terms of learning to cook. Right. I think cookbooks are, are great. Uh, when they express a point of view and you have a, it's like books of criticism. You know, if you read, I don't know if you read seven types of ambiguity or something like that without any background in English poetry already, you know, it would be like, what is this? What on earth? I mean, what? Like, come on, William Epson. I'm supposed to put saffron on that. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't even understand um, that there are kind different kinds of cinnamon. Cinnamon means one thing in one context, and another thing in another context. Cinnamon is a word that can you know be absolutely different plants under the. So like, uh, but I I find them useful once you already kind of have a have a, a repertoire under under your belt. But I'm I'm. You guys made me curious about this. Do you do you have a repertoire of things that you just do over and over again that you go back to, or is it a sort of striking out experimentally a lot? And kind of what would you say the proportion is? Whoever wants to, whoever wants to answer between I, like Jordan can go first on this one. Yeah, flights so of fan, flights like flights of fancy and greatest hits. I mean, since having kids, there's a lot more greatest hit stuff, especially because the kids tend to be pickier eaters. So if I want to do something experimental, you almost have to like make a separate thing for the kid to have, um, unless unless it seems like it's going to really uh, be just straight down the middle. And even then, you're you're playing with fire. It used to be, I would say, like when when I was living in New York City and walking distance from a grocery store and in grad school, so I often had like a little bit of extra time here and there, finding some kind of recipe that I had never, ever made before and just like, you know, throwing myself to the winds on it was something that I enjoyed doing a lot. And I'll still do that if I'm given the chance. I just don't get the chance to as much anymore. Mm. Um, I will say that like... I do find that the older I get and the more experience I have cooking, the less I really pay attention to the recipes. Like I'll read the recipe for inspiration and kind of get a list of ingredients. But what I do with the ingredients and even the amounts of the ingredients are much more kind of, uh, unless I'm really trying to learn something new, uh, I will just sort of say like, I basically see how this is going to work, right? Like you, you saute the aromatics and then you throw in the meat, right? This is not rocket science. And this, uh, this is interesting because if you go back in cookbooks, I feel like there's a, there's sort of three, three generational shifts in cookbooks that I know about, which is like a lot of the ones that I grew up with that my house growing up, uh, have sort of full page blow by blow, descriptions of everything that you need to do with the recipe like the the joy of cooking is great here it assumes that you know nothing and then tells you very clearly exactly what to do at every point in the process um and then if you go earlier if you go to like cookbooks from the late 19th very early 20th century and probably even more so if you go like back into historical examples and stuff like that they tell you nothing it's like you know the, the recipe for uh for chocolate chip cookies will be sort of like a list of ingredients and then it'll say like make the cookies 
and that's it. Because the, because it would be insulting to you to assume that you didn't already know what you're supposed to do once you have the the, the list of the ingredients. Um, and then because course, they were for they were days, for they were for professionals. They weren't really for you know because like home cooking was passed on. Uh, home cooking was passed on generationally, right? Like, and then. Yeah. You know. Well, and I mean, and home cooks were professionals, I think, is the other thing that you need to think about, think there is that, uh, yes, there were home cooks who would be looking at a cookbook, but they were taught by their mothers, right? And like, it was something that you needed to learn to do to have the job of being a housewife. And you too didn't need to read a whole bunch of prose. Like, you know how cookies are made. Maybe you are getting a book and trying to sort of your your cookie game or something like that but it's still you basically have a professional's relationship to this topic and you don't need to be held by the hand because your mother already did that for you when you were you know tied to her apron strings or whatever it is um but then what we have today, right, like we're, we've entered into like a, a post-Joy of Cooking era where it's all sort of the, the cooking blog thing, where it's basically the stuff that Elaine would write for the Jay Peterman catalog. Uh-huh. You know, like the, the, the recipe is there, but there is a short story before it. And it's a uh, kind of the what makes something a good cook is not necessarily does it have good recipes, but like, do you want to be friends with the personality that is being packaged for you in this cookbook? And that's what cooking, yeah, that, recipes that, are sort of yeah, are secondary to that. That's absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely like when I say cookbooks are kind of useful for a for a point of view. That is the genre of cookbook that I mean, like the the joy of cooking or Betty Crocker, right? Like, does not have uh, like the Fanny Farmer baking book does not have a point of view. You know what I mean? Whereas, do you guys like yeah, salt, yeah. fat, acid, heat? Have you guys read that one? Salt, fat, yeah. I mean, I haven't read the book. I saw the I saw the TV show, mm-hmm. and that was very much kind of... I, I think there were a couple of things that I learned that were interesting, but it's so much about just sort of a a personality and a relationship to food that is being offered to you as a sort of parasocial relationship, right? Where like you feel like you get to be her friend and go along on this journey with her. Do you actually learn anything? I mean, um, I saw someone on Twitter say that like the nice thing about salt, fat, acid, heat is that even if you just read the title, you've learned a little something. And I think that yes, you absolutely have, but that's that's kind of it. <laughs> well, that, I, the, <laughs> the the book is more a cookbook than than the the TV adaptation, which is really more of a travel show. Yeah, for sure. For for, sure. for what it's worth, the big one in salt, fat, acid, heat that at least in my experience, uh, myself and the cooks I know like were fallen down on is acid. I don't know if that's the, the same as you, but like the idea that like, oh, there's just always a little bottle, a little squeeze bottle, if you want it to be convenient of like white wine vinegar, just nearby or like a lemon or something. And just like, whatever you do, squeeze a lemon on it and it's going to be 15% better, uh, was the main insight of salt, fat, acid, heat. And I suppose, yeah, you don't have to read more than the title for that uh i mean that that's a big insight i get from watching guys grocery games too which i watch <laughs> religiously still. Not quite. i skimmed about 20 seasons but i'm back on it now so. <laughs> can i actually I, I had another question of the week that i wanted to ask without a lot of explanation can i just get name one food personality or food network personality that has meant a lot to you and you feel like inform your relationship with food pete is that going to be guy fieri for you well i mean i can name so many uh, I mean, I'll well, like, right pick now. One. I'm, I'm curious, which do you think is the one that you feel like tells us the most relevant information about your relationship with food? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it's probably I mean, you could say it's Guy Fieri, but I don't even think that that's accurate because uh, he's he's sort of the master of ceremonies. You don't necessarily get a ton of Guy Fieri's own cooking in Guy Fieri's shows. It's all about sh- the people that he curates. Right. And And the. And the people that he uh, that he that he um, that he talks about, I would say that if there's any cook on the Food Network who I mean, I okay. so in the Guy Fieri stable, I would say that Artie Sequeria is is up there. I'm probably getting her name wrong, although I do also really like Trisha Yearwood Um, and she's not Guy, Guy Fieri posse. 
But in terms of like how I when I actually like try to cook, Trisha Yearwood is a country singer. Come on, Trisha's. What do you mean, Trisha's Southern <laughs> Kitchen? Trisha's Southern Kitchen is like no, it's wonderful. I love I love the yeah. show, but the the you know like uh, look, brown sugar does not belong in your pimento cheese. I'm just saying. Have I, have I talked about the best <laughs> insight out of Trisha's Southern Kitchen, which is one of the best things I've ever seen on a food television show? I'm, I'm not talking about this on the podcast yet. <laughs> so so here's the best insight about cooking that I learned from a cooking television show. And it's from Trisha Yearwood from Trisha's Southern Kitchen. Trisha has a whole bunch of recipes that she makes. She makes a lot of food at home. Trisha Yearwood is, of course, married to... Garth Brooks. Exactly, because he has friends not just places but also respectable ones right and so he has, yeah he's uh, friends who are better singers than him yeah there go you on. go right he wouldn't disagree um that uh that that garth brooks's recipes are just trisha Year, uh, yearwood's recipes he adds tortellini to all of them uh and <laughs> <laughs> to all of them yeah just to everything does he just add tortellini because he's garth freaking brooks he sold a billion records he's the tony hawk of wearing a cowboy hat and if he wants tortellini with his food you know what there are worse vices right like that, that rock yeah. stars in the world have uh, <laughs> so this is my this is my traditional charles dickens-esque christmas roast goose stuffed with tortellini <laughs> and before <laughs> tomorrow morning we're going to have uh <laughs> We're going to have a brunch with Bloody Marys stuffed with tortellini. <laughs> this, yeah, is, this is pimento cheese with tortellini. <laughs> Actually, that sounds delicious. That sounds like a wonderful cheese sauce that, you know, um, I should say, just so that I don't get get into uh, domestic trouble, Pete, that I am uh, I am exaggerating for comic effect. And I definitely do uh, love Trisha's Southern, Southern Kitchen and Christine and I watch it together uh, whenever a new episode is is released. Well, well- you make a good point, and and I mean, I guess I should let your question uh, your question follow to to Jordan as well. I will say that Guys Grocery Games did a wonderful tribute to the late great Carl the Cuban Ruiz in season uh, twenty three, which we're catching up on right now, which is two seasons ago, and it made us both weep a lot uh, out, out of sort of us uh, of. Of appreciation and joy and sadness for him being such an awesome dude. So the nine-time winner of Guy's Grocery Games, Carl Cuban Ruiz from my own New Jersey. Um, but I will say that it is worth noting that even in addition to this taxonomy we talked about with with cooking as storytelling, as opposed to cooking as craft, uh, there's all there is definitely a distinction in cooking television shows between people that you watch because they're really good cooks and people that you watch because they're interesting TV personalities and then also people that you watch because they're presenting an idea of the relationship between food and home that you either aspire to or connect with. And I would put Trisha Yearwood. I would put Reed Drummond. I would put, uh, Ina Garden, uh, the, 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 the barefoot Garden, Contessa. Who's, he was a little bit more on the skill side, but who definitely is like, has a perspective not just on what food means, but also just like the relationship between food and home as something that is kind of familiar to the person who's watching it, um, even if it's aspirational, right? Even if there's kind of a difference in resources, uh, because you know she's a pretty fancy lady, uh, and all things she's a contessa after all, even if she can't afford shoes, uh, it's uh, it's um, it's just different. It's different taxonomy, right? It's like, uh, are you watching a show to find out about a dinner party that you could throw yourself? Are you watching a show because you want to find out about some restaurant you're never going to go to and, and the amazing things that you might learn about palates and food from watching it? Are you watching because you want to learn how to do some sort of specific cool thing and you don't know what it is? Uh, there's just so many different reasons. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I, I would I would pretty firmly locate. You know, you don't watch you, Trisha Yearwood isn't Anthony Bourdain, right? Like you're not you're not watching Trisha Yearwood because you want to like experience the the hidden Michelin star food truck in Singapore, right? Like it's, uh, <laughs> no, but that's you know, that's that's actually that's a really excellent point. That like part of the things and actually why part of why Trisha's Southern Kitchen is so like such a satisfying show and such a sort of good one to watch is that like you're not just saying I want food like that. It's more like I want friends like that to have yeah. you know what i mean and like food i want an experience entertaining, right? it's a having social your yeah, family. yeah exactly it's social it's about caretaking and and stuff like that and it's almost like i mean we're sort of going in like it, we're going into this topic through it, this is probably um which i'll sort of unfold in a minute like my prejudice my way of of 
going into it, but like we're going in through like the technique of cooking rather than like the occasion or context uh, of cooking. And, you know, um, like I, I, one of the things that Food Network or Scripps or whoever realized that that made Food Network like rather than being this kind of like niche thing to, you know, the sort of media powerhouse that it became is that like, honestly, you know, um, the, the uh, Trisha Yearwood's show probably is a lot more relevant to people than, you know, uh, than, I don't know, than like Thomas Keller's show or something like that would, would be. Um, and the I, kitchen is, is good in that regard too. And I love, I'm a big fan of Sonny Anderson. I like Sonny Anderson a lot too, but sorry, Jordan, Jordan probably has a better answer to the like chef that you connect with or emulate or, or feel like speaks to you uh, than, than I probably, I, w- I was going to, really a little bit of, I was going to troll a little bit on this on this question and and say, but then Pete, you name checked him. I I was going to say, um, you know, Jordan, I just I feel like the chef that that really influenced me the most is Anthony Bourdain because he made me realize that food crosses cultures and it's about sharing with people, you know, and just kind of give a give a like high roading <laughs> high roading kind of non answer to that. the 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 actual answer is for <laughs> sure Alton Brown. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. I actually use Alton Brown recipes. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. The the Sorry. sort of the nerdy like food science for you know the food science for general audience um, kind of guy. And I find that like there's another sort of uh, set of cookbooks I have, Jordan, and they are like I have uh, like bound annual editions of Cooks Illustrated magazine or like swimsuit edition. Yeah, exactly. Be careful. You'll burn yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the swimsuit edition, ironically, uh, the same months as the grilling episodes. And that leads to terrible third degree burns every year. It's a terrible idea. Don't, OSHA is all over these people. Don't, don't do it. But like the idea that like, okay, so, you know, the, it's the, it's the, uh, uh, the Baudrillard, Baudrillard and Baudrillardian uh, simulacrum simulation of uh, of a cookbook because it's like okay Harold McGee has like read Harold McGee the the author of On Food and Cooking the kind of the the standard reference food science book. Um, for cooks is uh you know has like tested all the ways of roasting the chicken and so here's like a, a you know here's the like the i don't know scientifically you know accurate ideal roast chicken you know for crispy skin and uh juicy breasts and and but not over you know not overcooked and thighs that come up to 170 at the same time that the breast is coming up to 160 and how do you manage that whole temperature temperature thing and like uh, for for food network anyway alton brown represents that yeah. uh to me I, jordan i um, saw him live i saw his live show oh yeah i should have i can't believe i forgot alton brown he's great yeah, definitely. Um, same uh, question. Really, Robert Irvine, because I just like to lift weights and yell at people. That's just my. Yeah. <laughs> mine, mine is really Gordon Ramsay because you know it's rotten. This <laughs> um, it's Jake Tapper because I don't cook, I have no skills, and I hate chairs. What's this chair doing here? <laughs> well, uh, the, Did you um, see the uh, the Gordon Ramsay thing where he would have random celebrities on to sort of go head to head with him cooking something, and Meatloaf was there. <laughs> making chili and like you could tell that uh gordon ramsay had made you know like a gourmet uh, culturally authentic uh very very highbrow chili and meatloaf had like thrown 20 bouillon cubes into a pot and it was just like the, the ugliest looking thing and then they brought it out to the customers and they all preferred meatloaf's chili and gordon ramsay nearly blew a fuse <laughs> <laughs> But by the way, I, I misspoke. I should not have talked about the CNN Sunday morning host, Jake Tapper, but rather the host of Bar Rescue, John Tapper, who are not the same person. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jordan, same, same question to you, food, food personality. Yeah. So also Alton Brown, for sure. Uh, uh, and I think that the the thing that appeals to me about it is both the sense that there is, like, scientific knowledge here that can be mastered, which is appealing for various reasons we didn't go into. Um, and, and you also kind of covered it, I think, Matt. But then also because, like, 
weirdly that that idea of the social occasion of cooking is very much absent for him right like there's uh there's this always this uh narrative and good eats is like the the, the sort of the old good eats is the other uh, that i watched a ton of and like recorded certain recipes, certain episodes onto my TiVo at the time so that I could go and like watch them later. Bloop, bloop. I was doing it right. Bloop, bloop. But bloop, like, bloop. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, uh, like there will be some kind of fictional reason why he needs to cook eggplant or something like that, that is brought up at the beginning. But then it's just sort of like, well, here's all the stuff you can do with eggplant. And the idea that like, you're not really being given one set of steps to follow in order to make this particular thing, eggplant Parmesan, but like, here are the properties of eggplant and here are the levers with which you can work your will upon the eggplant. Like that is, I think the, the, selling point of Alton Brown to me. So, like, honestly, maybe it's kind of about power, weirdly enough. Um, and he he's very much alone in the kitchen. Like, there's a part of the, the conceit is that when he wants a whisk, they have uh, a, like, a disembodied hand, probably some intern, coming in from off camera, and he calls it, like, thing one or something like that. But... You know, that's that's not a sous chef who is deserving of human dignity. That's just sort of like you go into the kitchen and you have the food there and you have this raw material and you have this knowledge and you then know where all the levers are and you can pull them and you come out at the end with this very impressive thing. And you can kind of sculpt it in the way that particularly fits you. If you uh, There's one particular thing, his, his recipe on chocolate chip cookies. He does like five different batches of cookies and says like, well, if you want them chewy, you do this. And if you want them crispy, you do that. And if you want them more cakey, then you do this. And that one to me was always like the platonic ideal of a Good Eats uh, episode. And that for me is like the, the most fun I've ever had watching uh, food TV. The second answer, though, and a very, very different one, would be uh, The Great British Baking Show. Uh, which is not at all something that you would learn technique or or recipes from, but does allow you to watch, you know, pathos and failure in a very, very quaint setting, which is another thing that I've enjoyed a tremendous amount. But like, although I've enjoyed that, I don't think that it really represents my relationship with food. It's, it's just sort of entertaining. Uh, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like it's, it's part of me in the same way that like the Alton Brown stuff does. Sure. I, but Jordan, I have a, a book recommendation for you, but like the idea of the idea of increasing your agency, like increasing your ability to cope rather than kind of making you kind of dependent upon instructions is definitely a, uh, a kind of a distinction worth kind of observing here. Pete, you sounded like yeah, you're about to, oh, thing- sorry. As I said, this is the thing about cookbooks, right, is that cookbooks generally give you recipes. And I think that, like, speaking for myself, there were sort of a few different phases in my relationship with being able to cook. There was a point when I didn't know how to do it at all, right? And then I sort of learned from my family growing up, as I said. And then there was a point when I could follow recipes, and I was good at following recipes, and I felt like if you gave me a recipe for sort of whatever – I could probably turn out a decent version of whatever. And then it got to the point where I was like, well, the recipe is sort of not the issue. It, to really know how to cook something, it means that you, you've you made it enough times that you kind of know – it's like it's a car and you know how to drive it, right? And like you can, if the, the whim takes you, make it more this kind of thing or more that kind of thing on the fly. And it's only once you've gotten to that stage that like – that you really know how to cook that thing. Now, that's a very arrogant way of talking. You know, plenty of people can absolutely cook it by following the recipe. But that's uh, the sort of – if I, if I I'm not censoring myself. That's the the arrogant way that I feel about my ability to cook the things that I really know how to cook. Sure. Um, the the book recommendation I have for you, uh, uh, Jordan, is called, is by Michael Ruhlman, and it's called Ratio. Um, and it is just a, a each section is a ratio of. Uh, of ingredients, like for example, the ratio to make pound cake is one to one to one to one, uh, fat to sugar to eggs to flour, right? Which is why it's called pound cake, pound of butter, pound of sugar, pound of eggs, pound of flour, um, by weight. But if you're making, you know, if you're making, uh, cookies like shortbread cookies or something like that, um, 
It's like uh, uh, three, two, one, you know, three, uh, three parts flour, two parts fat, one part sugar. Um, and you can add, you know, to that pound cake, you can add whatever you want. Um, lemon, you could add vanilla, you could add a little baking soda if you wanted to. <laughs> You know. As long as you add a full pound of lemons, so as not to throw off the ratio. <laughs> yeah, you can flavor it. You can add, you know, poppy seed. You know, sprinkle poppy seeds, or like, you know, half a teaspoon of uh, vanilla, or like, you know, one teaspoon per cup of, you know, per volume cup of um, of uh, baking powder. If you wanted to puff up a little bit, like, you know, but those are those are like the embellishments. Those are the kind of the grace notes. The like the actual harmonic structure, you know, of this, uh, you know, of this dough is, or this batter is, you know, one to one to one to one versus like for a shortbread cookie, it's, uh, you know, three to two to one of, uh, of flour to, um, flour to fat to liquid, I think to, to get that right flour to fat to liquid, but like that, like, and that's how this, that's how this sort of this book progresses and it like totally, uh, totally changed my perspective on any any number of things because like oh like you change that you know you change that pound cake recipe a little bit like and now you're making a sponge cake you're not making a you know you're making a different kind of thing and like if you go you know if you increase the butter in the mayonnaise like or if you do it with butter now you're in hollandaise territory and not mayonnaise territory or something like that like that like you can do that these are the kind of the the levers anyway i'll put a link in the show notes i found it really helpful to me anyway and and jordan i had a book i wanted to recommend to you it's called dune so it's sort of like if star wars tripled down on the sand thing right and it's like there's a dude you should just read it it's pretty great it's got sand and it's got spice it's got lots of spice Artie sequeria uh from guys grocery games would be like this has a lot of spice but not enough acid uh, and that's 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 all I have to say about and the, the and and Pete, I have a book yeah. I want to recommend to you, which yeah. is uh, it's by William Emson. It's called Seven Types of Cinnamon, and oh, uh, it really <laughs> really goes through like cassia cinnamon and like you know Ceylon cinnamon and Vietnamese cinnamon, all the different kinds. Uh, uh, there are seven of them in the book. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I mean, Dune. Dune has about the ratio of a modern recipe blog. You've got this big narrative at the front, and then at the end you have, like, the appendix, where it just, like, lists all of the weights of everything in the entire story, right? (laughs) It was just going to be a big worm fight, but then Google was just going to pull it out and put it on the front page. They had to bury it under a lore dump, right? That's that's how it it works. It's all about search engine optimization. Did I tell you guys that I came across the other day? I was looking for, I think, a way to make... um, to make a like Caesar salad dressing that had actual anchovies in it. Mm. And I found what seemed to be a recipe blog and I was like scrolling down and scrolling down and scrolling down. And it had those ads that like you're scrolling and the ad fills the entire screen and then you scroll down. And then I like got down to the bottom and there were affiliate links. And I realized there had not been a recipe on this webpage. (laughs) It was like just purely the like the catfishing of a recipe blog that did not ever actually contain any instructions about how to cook no, food. not even uh i mean the real the real rickrolling move there would have been to include a recipe for catfish down at the bottom of the you know <laughs> so i would have respected that <laughs> Do you guys uh, i mean i'm i want to just plug sorry matt do you have want to jump into any no no topic? no you get you get it I wanted to plug the Townsends. Are you guys into Townsends at all? Maybe this is where I nerd out in an unproductive way. Townsends is a specialty store, Townsend and Sons, I believe run out of Indiana. And I know this because I bought some handmade uh, cloth masks from them. And when you hear about what they do, you might question the wisdom of that decision, even though they have uh, filter pockets in them. They're an 18th century reenactment supply business. And so they uh, like they'll supply you with like like authentic dishes and clothes and stuff for your like Revolutionary War reenactment needs. And it wasn't clear for them what their business was supposed to be until they launched a YouTube channel of 18th century cooking. Uh, so you can look at kind of reenacted cooking oh, uh, wow. of, of like classic dishes. Um, and I, I thought when Jordan, you were talking earlier, 
old cookbooks, right? And and uh, I thought, oh, maybe he's seen Townsend's too because they talk about that. They a lot of their recipes are pulled from primary sources. And so they'll explain to you what the book was and who wrote it and who it was for and what it says and how much it leaves out. It's not the guy is not the best cook, I think. I think he's much more interested in the history. The stuff looks good, but there's also like, you know, a video of how to make hardtack, which, you know, bring that to a cocktail party. Right? Like it's uh, perhaps it's the next big thing. Um, but yeah, but I would, I would recommend checking it out if you're interested. Uh, apparently they're really into nutmeg and Dutch ovens, which sounds like a sex thing. You realize that it's about making beef in various sorts of ways. Um, and, and whatnot. That also sounds like a sex thing. There you go. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm looking at it now and it's like spinach and eggs, 1806, (laughs) like corn and eels, mushrooms in cream, uh, corn and eels. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to link you to the corn and eels one right now. It's from 2017, so it's a historical document within a historical document. Historical document all the way down. I, Pete, I found that I found the website and I am stuck on uh, professed cookery by the aptly named Ann Cook. Uh, yeah. Cook was a harsh critic. It's called that, by the way. It's <laughs> named after Ann, right? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Cook was a harsh critic of the popular cookbook Arsha author hannah glass and she spared no words in her critique cook dedicated over 70 pages to ruthlessly call out glass for obvious errors found in her best-selling book (laughs) the art of cookery cook proclaimed herself the teacher of the true art uh of cookery um, Man, cancel culture has gotten out of control. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All this talking has made me hungry, and it's not yet dinner time on the West Coast. So uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, Pete and Jordan, thanks very much for podcasting with me. Leave your favorite recipes in the comments on the show notes, your favorite dishes or your favorite Food Network personalities. We would love to uh, We would love to uh, talk with you about that on the site. Click on, click on through to the other side if you want to... Uh, Leave a comment for us. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until we're then, please visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. I'm going to go stir my risotto. <laughs> Classic!